Uh, London is now probably the busiest place, the biggest production hub in the whole of the, whole of the world. And that's down to three, pretty much three primary reasons. The first is financial, tax breaks that we get here. They're fantastic. The second is the infrastructure. We've got places like Pinewood and Leesden and all the camera hire companies, all the costume hire companies. And the third reason is because we've got world-class crew, and we're going to meet three of them now. So please, big round of applause for our wonderful panel. So uh, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself with your name and all right. your credits. Sir. My name's John Bright. I run a company called Cosprop Limited, and we supply clothes to film, theatre, and television. Up until about 10 years ago, I designed films, but don't have the time to do that now. The films were mainly for the Merchant Ivory Company, things like Room with a View, Howard's End, Remains of the Day, uh, The Bostonians, none of which you'll probably have heard of because they were some time ago. My name is Sonia Klaus, and I'm a production designer in the film and television industry. I worked my way through from in the art department. I also was a set decorator for quite a long time. And I was very lucky that um, I had worked on many shows, but uh, many years ago, about 20 years ago, I met a director, uh, Ridley Scott, and I've worked on over nine, 10 projects with him in various roles. And um, I still work with him now, um, mostly on jobs where he's producer sometimes when he's director. Uh, my name's Chris Munro, and I'm a production sound mixer. So that means I'm the person that is in charge of the sound all the way through the actual shooting of the film. So I work with the actors and the director to record the original sound on a film. The films you might, the most recent film you'd probably know um, of mine would be probably Gravity, um, which I won an Academy Award for. I'm currently um, working on Wonder Woman, um, which we're just coming to the end of. And I've just been working with Steven Spielberg on a film called Ready Player One, which I think you're going to hear a lot about next year. Yes, Chris, if I can start with you then. Uh, most, most of the people attending the Interfilm Festival probably doesn't, don't have direct access to the film industry. Can you tell us about your own beginnings, how you got started out? Oh, you know, I, I started a long time ago. I started, I started at 16 because I was mad about the cinema. My whole thing when I was a kid was that I would go to the cinema um, pretty much all the time. That was my whole, I had a passion for the cinema. But it was actually much harder to get into the business then than it is now, because it was very unionized, and um, you couldn't get in unless you could become a member of the union, which often um, you had to have family in the business or you had to know people. It was very, very difficult. But my other interest was electronics, a bit like the way that a lot of kids now um, you know, do gaming and they're good with computers. My thing was electronics, and it was the, uh, in my childhood, it was kind of the birth of the transistor and microelectronics, and that was something that I was interested in. I started to, used to build radios and repair TVs and all that kind of stuff. That was my hobby. But I wrote to, at the age of 15, 16, I'd, I'd taken my O-levels a year early, and I was quite good at school, but I, I hated school. I really just wanted to get into the film industry, but it just seemed impossible. And then, by chance, I heard of a job going at Elstree Studios where they needed a trainee in the sound department. Hadn't really even thought about the sound department. You know, it, was just, it was just films I was interested in. And um, I went along to the interview, and it turned out that the person that was interviewing me, who was more used to the old technology, I knew much more about technology than he did. And um, they wanted to offer me a job, and they offered me a job and said, when could I start? 
I said, Monday? And they said, yeah, sure, start Monday. So I started in the studio Monday, telling my parents that it was a, a job in the school holidays, because they'd expected me to continue my education. And um, <laughs> the school holidays came and went, and then, you know, come September, when the school phoned my mother to say, why wasn't I back at school? <laughs> I had to tell her that it wasn't a summer job. From then on, you know, my father kind of uh, agreed that I could stay and, and work uh, on condition that I did night school. So I went to night school pretty much every night when I was working to try to continue some education. And uh, working in a studio, they were also pretty good for me because they helped me to, um, do, uh, to get an electronics qualification as well. And starting so young, starting at 16, you know, it's... It's a great time to start. You're a sponge, you're absorbent, and of course, I'm, I'm still as obsessed by film as I, as I was then. And Sonia, what about you? Where did you start? You used to visit theatre. Uh, I had a bit of a different, mine was different. I wasn't allowed, I didn't leave school at 16. I did my A-levels, and then I did a couple of degrees and various things, and my father finally got a bit bored and said, when are you gonna actually get a job? Because I just was like a perpetual student. I went to Wimbledon School of Art, and I did theatre design for my degree eventually and then I left and I w actually went into the theatre I didn't I didn't go straight into film I did theatre for a bit I worked on lots of big shows in the West End as an assistant and at the Opera House a lot of drawing and model making a lot of drawing and I always stress that to people that in the art department it's all about drawing and then I was to get when I broke into the film and television industry I literally was I don't even know where I was. I was somewhere, and someone called me who I'd been to college with, and he just said, do you want to come and art direct a show? And I really didn't know what an art director was. I really, really didn't. I thought, I, I just, I didn't, I, bizarrely, I thought you directed art. I don't, I don't know why. It sounds so <laughs> stupid now. I'm like, I can't believe I thought about that. You wouldn't think I had three A-levels, one in, <laughs> in, in sciences as well. And uh, so he came, and he just said, yeah, yeah, you, you, you just do a bit of drawing and a bit of stuff. I was like, oh, okay. So I kind of got thrown in at the deep end and I went straight in as an art director. Um, I tell people that come and see me with their portfolios that I started as a runner, because I just think that's the best thing to say, because otherwise they come and they think they can just be a production designer straight away and it isn't, doesn't really work like that. So I tell a little bit of a white lie because I just think that's probably the best way to do it. And then, you know, I just got the one, I started the one thing, it was a television show and then it just led on like it does with other things. And when you want to be, I was an assistant. I was, a, I was an art director, and a standby art director to begin with. But when you're at that sort of level, there are lots of jobs available for that position. It's when you start to get higher up, like you become like Chris. They only have usually one sound designer. You know, you only have one set decorator. You only have one production designer, one costume designer. So the higher you get up. It, 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 you know, it, it's not, there's not that many jobs you can go for. Even when you hear people talking in the industry saying, oh, there's loads of work, there's loads of work. But when you start out, you get a little despondent, you know, and you have to keep going. So who's in your, <laughs> who's, who's, can you describe who's in your core team? Like, where does it go? So you start the um, production designer. In my, yeah, so I start as production designer, and then I have a supervising art director, and then next to that person is the set decorator. And then the set decorator will have under them a team of people, which will include the prop master, and then a, a team of model makers, depending on what the show is, you know, mm. whatever you're doing, it, they all vary. And then in the art department side, the other part of the art department, the supervising art director will then have an art director, assistant art director, draftsman, uh, you'll have a production coordinator, and then there's a buyer, and 
uh, there are quite a few people and whole graphics department, and then there'll be vehicles department. Uh, there will be, you know, whatever of the other, depending on what you're doing. And if you're doing a science fiction show, then you're gonna have a different core group of people that you change because of their skills. But pretty much that's what you have. You have quite a big team, um, depending on how much money there is to spend on labor, of course. Well, what's the biggest team you've ever had? The biggest team I've ever had is about 475 people working for me. Really? And yes, that, and, and that, that did do my head in yeah. a bit. Um, it was 475 people because I had to sign their pay slip, their things, their weekly sheets every single week because they didn't have a computerized system and I used to sit and it used to take me forever. And it's because I was, I was set decorator on a very big film and I had a huge budget. It's the biggest budget I've ever had. I had $14 million, which was at my disposal to spend, which was just incredible. <laughs> Um, and it was, in two, it was because it was in two countries. So the two countries, one country had 200 people, and that was made up of you know, um, prop makers, model makers, um, sculptors, prop men, people laying roads for me, greensmen, I mean, you know, people doing pottery because it was a big, 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 big film. Well, so going back, John, if I can come to you, oh, now, yeah. going all the way back to the beginning, you, when I read an interview that said that there were no film courses designed no, costume that's design, right. so, no. like that. so is everything self-taught that you've learned? Uh, a lot of it is, uh, but there was a fashion course at Walthamstow that I did, and then every evening I'd go into the library and do the other side of it, which is what interested me, the period stuff. Okay, so, oh, and then when did Cosprop come into things? How did ah. you? Well, the starting point is I wanted to be an actor. My father wouldn't hear of it because that wasn't a job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was a Victorian. He was born in 1894, 96, I'm not sure which. And so when it came, uh, I did my O-levels at 17. That uh, wasn't very good managed to get three, I think. And so he sent me off to a technical college uh, to learn a trade, uh, and that was to do with fashion, and it was construction, and it was uh, design work. Uh, and then I finished a four-year course then in 1961, and after that, I went into repertory company because I was interested in theater as well as film, television. And I stayed there for a year and was very lucky to get, after that, a chance to do acting because I went to somewhere which had just opened called the E15 Acting School. And I think I was in the second year of that and I managed to get a grant for two years. Um, and after that, uh, rather than pursue fashion, I went into repertory to help get used to all the things that one would come across in designing small, larger films, opera, and then eventually film. So all of that knowledge just built up to Yeah, those, and it? so Cosprop then was started in 65, and last year, 50 years old. When you're working with actors, mm -hmm. um, do you have to create a special sort of bond, a special sort of trust in order to get them to wear the costume? Yes. Often what happens on a film is I try and rather than draw things, often people can't read drawings as far as clothes go. So I get them to try on a series of clothes 
in the period from the stock that we have, I will get, say it's a, a Merchant Ivory Edwardian film, we'll get um, anything that I can remember that's been useful in the past, try it on to get a response from the actor to see one thing whether they like color, particular color. Some actresses, actors will always say, I never wear green. And it's a throwback to early theater. It seems to be that green, uh, the dye for green was produced with poison. They don't want to wear it because it's associated with something uh, unpleasant. Uh, but it does tell you, when you try these clothes on, what works for them. Sometimes you're so sure that a garment's going to work that it'll go through to the finished film. In Room with a View, there was a certain raincoat that we'd constructed for a television show called Shoulder to Shoulder that I thought would be ideal for Maggie Smith. I put it on her and she related to it immediately. But other, other things you try and you think, it's not quite going to work that way. And then you get their input into it all the time while you're trying these clothes on. And so you learn their likes, their dislikes, and really, generally, what suits them. Certainly, uh, everyone will know Kate Winslet, and she was in a film called Sense and Sensibility. And in terms of where the period starts, there's a waistline, which isn't a true waistline. It's somewhere in between. And we just couldn't make that work on her for some reason. And so we had to move it back higher under the bus. It's just that certain people, when you look at them, they can take certain things, and other times they can't. And it might be a technical thing, like this week um, we were fitting Kenneth Branagh for uh, Murder on the Orient Express that's coming along. And I don't know whether you know about dress shirts, but they're very stiff-fronted shirts, and they have studs down the front. And I, I was in with the fitting, and we tried his stiff-fronted shirt on, and it was an agony to get the studs through and finally up at the neck. And in the end, I suggested that they, they rigged all this and opened it up the back because Ken's also directing the picture and it would have taken someone in the morning maybe half an hour to do all this stuff. That's before getting the mic and everything <laughs> in there. Yeah. That dress-up session is very, very important and later you'll still come across problems like we did. Even when the clothes all look right, there'll be some technical problem. It'll, um, there might be something that makes a bad noise uh, sometimes in dresses, the certain taffetas that rustle and create. I don't suppose it's such a problem now, but same problem. Same problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you have to be very careful uh, to put a layer of cotton between two materials that are likely to cause a bad noise. And so it really brings it it all into one's mind that it has to be a collaboration between all the people working on a project because in some way everything's affected. Certainly with color mm -hmm. uh, and pattern, you have to be very aware of what the, the rooms are that people will be functioning in and what they'll be seen against. 
so that there are no awkwardnesses, should no. we say. Mm -hmm. yeah. no, there's quite an overlap between costume and the art. Yeah, and there is, there but also with sound. Yeah. Sound's a biggie for us because, yeah. you know, you, even yeah. with the costume, but in the art department, you have to be aware of it. You know, you might have a fountain or, or it could be anything. It could be yeah. gravel. It doesn't yeah. really... You have to think about all those things because it drives them yeah. potty yeah. and then it drives you potty yeah. and then you have to try and think how you're going to work it out because yeah. it's someone's yeah. written in their fountain. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you, you just have to get around. And likewise with costume, it's really important in the, in the design department that you all, even with makeup and hair, you mm. talk to them mm. because you know they may have a big wig on, you yeah. can't have a low ceiling. You know, you may, I mean, you have to think about all those things, you know, and people don't think about that. They just, no. and they don't get it when they see it. They don't realize that people like the size of the chair. You might have a very big actor. Well, it's no good giving it, putting a little chair, even if you like it, because they can't get in it, you know, and, and it's just simple things like mm. that. And some people just don't think that figures, but it does, mm. you know, and, and you have to pay attention to it because you need to, the actors, when they come in, they're, they're the main, you know, most of it is about them. Mm and you don't want them to disappear. I've watched so many films where they put an actress, you know, there was one thing that I watched, um, I was on a panel for the BAFTAs voting, and they put this actress, actually, ironically, in green. She was wearing <laughs> green, and they painted the wall green. Yeah. So all you yeah. saw was this red head going yeah. around, and right. everyone was going, is she? <laughs> and I went, I think that's her there, pretending to be a pot plant. Yeah. I mean, it was just, and, and I don't know whether it was, Someone somewhere had made that decision. You know, yeah. it'd be like sticking her on one of these chairs. I mean, you would, you'd be like, well, we'll play spot the person. Mm. Yeah. Because, and, and they obviously had not talked to each other, but then they just, it was too late, or the actress had said, I just love this costume, I've got to wear it. <laughs> In which case you have to go with it, don't you? Because otherwise they have a hissy fit and they go to their trailer for about a year. So <laughs> you don't get anywhere. <laughs> or they play games or whatever they want to do, or leave. Yeah. And I think collaboration is the key word for all of us, though, because uh, I mean we're there to to, to to help to tell the story. Um, so the actors are what we need to try to allow them to do their work um, without influencing unduly, um, and to be able to tell the story. And we all work together. So you might, you know, people wonder why um, sound department would need to work with costumes, but exactly that because we need to be able to put microphones in costumes. Even working with hairdressers, sometimes we put microphones in the hair. Um, and as Sonia says, um, things like gravel, um, for instance, could absolutely ruin a scene when if you've got, you imagine you've got a couple of actors walking along, perhaps looking like they're walking on a gravel path. But if all you can hear the crunch is the crunch of the gravel, then you can't, you, 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 you miss the story. You miss the intimacy of the conversation between the actors. And so things that Sonia will do is she'll have rubber gravel made, for instance. There'll be a whole load of things that we'll do. We'll collaborate to talk about to still get the same look, but to make it work. And in sound, lots of people ask, well, why does it matter that the fountain's going, for instance, if you can see the fountain and the actors talking? Um, you know, surely there would be a sound of a fountain. And it's very much because the way that we have to work is we have to keep everything absolutely separate. Um, especially the, the actor's dialogue, because we might want to perhaps even change words later. We might want to use words from different performances. But more importantly, what we will need to do is to produce the film in different languages. So, and of course, we don't want to have to reproduce all of the sound effects that are natural and real to a film if we're putting the film out in Russian. So it's absolutely vital 
we can get all of the actors' voices and performances absolutely clean and independent of every other noise. You also, when you're choosing locations, because not every film that you, you work on, you have the chance to build everything in the studio. Sometimes you don't have that budget, or sometimes you can't build a stately home or whatever it could be that you want a petrol station. It doesn't really matter. So you'll go to a location, and you have to think, I do, when I go and choose it, I have to think, OK, is this in the flight path? Well, that's going to be a nightmare for sound, because every two seconds there's going to be a plane going overhead. And actually, there's a scene with the characters that's really important for them to tell the story. And they don't want to have to stop in the middle of some sort of thing because there's a plane going over. Likewise, roads with you know, houses that are near the motorway. If you film in the wintertime, obviously, there are no leaves on the trees, so it doesn't baffle the sound. But if you go to that same house in the summer or in the, in the time when the leaves are on the trees, you might not hear the motorway so much. Or if it's a night shoot, you know that that motorway isn't going to have as much traffic on it. So you know, OK, we might be able to get away with this. You have to think about all of those things. You can't yeah. just arrive somewhere as a designer and go, oh, I fancy that because it's the right thing. And then you have a row with the sound right. department because you're insistent that you have to go there. Because there's always a yep. solution for everything. And there's always yep. another location. There's always another yep. place that's going to work just as well. Sometimes the director may be a little tricky, yep. and they may mm -hmm. say, I have to go to that mm. place because mm. for whatever reason they've decided. Yep. So then we have to come up with some scenario. And inevitably, we might end up mm. leaving because we just go, you know what? The budget's just going to go up. And the producer's like, mm. really? <laughs> budget's going to go up? OK, well, maybe we should look for somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, uh, so the budget word is always a good word. But interestingly, again, it's about collaboration because my job, for instance, isn't to go there and say that location's no good. No. I mean, my job is also to go there and say, I know you want this location. It's a problem for this, that. My job is to say how we can make it work. And so you also, yes. we also yeah. work together to try yeah. and to, to, to find a compromise where we get the look, the sound, the performances, everything to make the film. It's very much a collaborative process. Mm -hmm.